We're in a series this summer um, on leveraging life. That was the sermon before the sermon. So, uh, and this sermon's just going to have to get shorter. I can already tell. Uh, leveraging life, and the, what we're talking about is, and it'll be on the screen. Just a definition of what I mean is using your life for maximum advantage for the gospel. And so, what we're not talking about is trying to add a bunch of stuff to your life. And can't you, can't you? Uh, start doing more and coming to this event and being a part of this new ministry. That's not necessarily what we're talking about. But in the daily patterns and rhythms of your life to infuse those with gospel intentionality was the word we used last week. And so to leverage your time, your resources, your your schedules, your vacations, your jobs, your your grocery shopping, your home improvement projects to just the normal stuff of life to leverage that for God's mission. So we began last week, and the first three weeks were kind of at the 40,000 foot, just trying to communicate what, what we're talking about and what would motivate this. Then, then the last, the, the remainder of the weeks in this series, we'll be getting down to the real practical level of what this begins to look like in life. But last week, we said this kind of leveraged life must be fueled by God's magnitude. We need to, the, the, the idea was this, we need to be so enamored with God's glory and full of God's spirit that we just can't help but throw ourselves in to, to God's mission, to what he's doing in this world. And so this week we're going to, it's connected to that, but we're going to say we need to be motivated by love then. So you can't say you're enamored with God and his glory and you're full of his spirit if you don't love what God loves. And so... So we need to be motivated to join in doing what God is doing and loving like God loves. That's what we want to see this morning. The big idea this morning is that to leverage your life for mission, this mission that God is on, you need to be motivated by love to love. And love is hard, isn't it? Love is hard because it involves people. And people are sinners and sin is messy. It gets complicated and it's uncomfortable to, to love people. And we're sinners and we're the most complicated part of the equation usually. It's exhausting. It means laying aside perceived rights for the sake of others and that's difficult for us. And if we're honest, there are some people or types of people that we find in great difficulty in loving. And, and, uh, we, we may not have love. We, there may actually be an underlying hatred in our hearts for some people. We may have cynicism. We may have disgust. We may have fear of people. And so how do we learn to love others well? How do we, how do we live lives that are leveraged for God's mission, loving the lost, loving the broken, loving people well? And that's that's my prayer for us this morning, just to begin to see that we, again, we, as I said and we, as I was praying, that we wouldn't retreat to our bunkers, but we would love well. We would risk all to serve and to bless others and point them to Jesus Christ and get engaged in the messiness of, of helping people, relating to people who are hurting and broken and lost. So this morning, seven... Biblical motivations to love people, to love people. First motivation is this, and this is where we're at in Genesis chapter 1. It's the lifespan of the soul, the lifespan of the soul. Each year in, I mean, in our nation and in many nations of the world, there are they calculate the average lifespan for that year, average human 
life expectancy. In 2015, for the United States, that's 79. It's 82 for women, 76 for men. Sorry, ladies, we really drag you down on this one. Um, but in other parts of the world, there, it's, it's just in the upper 50s and underdeveloped countries. And uh, The oldest person ever to have lived, lived to be 122 and a half years old. The halves are important when you're really young and when you're really old. Um, <laughs> 122 and a half from 1875 to 1997. Um, but, but life expectancy, we're talking about that, that only accounts for our physical bodies. That, that because of sin, our bodies wear out, they die. It's part of the fall, part of the curse. But our souls, that, that inner part of our being, which isn't, isn't fantasy, it isn't make-believe, that is who we are. That Our souls live forever. God has made them to. Every single person is made in God's image and has a soul that lives forever. That's Genesis 1, 26 and 28. We are made, let us, God said, let us make man in our image after our likeness. Verse 27, so God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. So human beings are unique from all other creatures On the earth, all those cool creatures we looked at this week at Vacation Bible School. But we're unique in the sense that we are uniquely made in God's image. We bear the imago Dei, you hear. Okay, I'm not going to use any more Latin. I wore you out on that last week. And I don't really even know Latin. So, um, But but it's incredible that God has made us to reflect His likeness. Now, some of you are theologically savvy. You think, wait a second, though. But that... But, but yeah, that's Genesis 1, but wait until Genesis 3. You have the fall, you have the flood, and so much for the image of God, right? It's lost. Well, not necessarily, after, not true at all, actually. After the fall, after the flood, you get to Genesis chapter 9, verse 6, and God institutes capital punishment. And what does he say? He says that whoever sheds the blood of man, by man shall his blood be shed. And the reason that he gives... For God made man in his own image. So even after the fall, even after the flood, God says man still has this unique dignity as a divine image bearer. That image is marred because of sin, but it's still there. This likeness of the image of likeness of God. Jesus talked about. This in a different way in speaking of man's immortality, the immortality of the soul. Mark chapter 8, verse 36. He said, what does it profit if a man to gain the whole world and to forfeit his soul? For what will a man give in return for his soul? The obvious answer implied nothing. There's nothing worth your soul. You can't, you can't give me anything. No no. Amount of money, no fancy vacation, no ability or talent, like sell your soul to the devil kind of thing. You can't give me any possession that I'll trade for my soul. You can't write a check with enough zeros at the end for me to give you my soul. Soul is an immortal, eternal thing. It's made in God's image. It will never die. And so because of that fact, this is what I want you to see. Because of that fact, we should love all people, however broken and wicked and lost they may be. 
And this is this is some of the implications of that. Maybe maybe again we get to that where some people are easier for us to love than others. But this is what I want you to see. You, you this upper middle class family man driving his SUV home from a six figure salary job, and he's going to coach his son's soccer game. He's made in the image of God. God loves him. And yet there's also, maybe there's a junkie who's got a needle stuck in his veins just that he just filled with heroin. He's made in the image of God. He has a soul that will never die. Both. Both are made in God's likeness. Both have immortal souls. And that's how we have to view humanity. That's how we have to view those that are all around us. It's in this room, outside of this room, around the world. It's this leveling effect for us to see every single person made in God's image with an eternal soul. And that's how we need to view those celebrations that we see on TV celebrating the Supreme Court ruling. I, don't let your heart be full of hate towards those people, but look at eyes. Look at people. There ought to be, with the sadness, with the sense of anger at the decision and there ought to be compassion. Those are eternal souls. They're defying the God in whose image they have been made. Turn to Matthew 22. And we'll see our second motivation. Matthew chapter 22. Second motivation to love well is the jurisdiction of God. The jurisdiction of God. God is the one who makes the laws. God is the one who enforces the law. And his number one laws that he's revealed to us have to do with love. Matthew 22, verse 34. But when the Pharisees that heard that he, Jesus, had silenced the Sadducees, they gathered together. And one of them, a lawyer, you can insert a lawyer joke here. I'm not because Jeremy will sue me for defamation. But um, but a lawyer, this is a bit rigid. They're a, a law expert, God's law, an expert in the law. He Asked him a a question to test him. Verse 36. Teacher, which is the great commandment of the law? And he said to him, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind. This is the great and first commandment. And the second is like it. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. On these two commandments depend all the law and the prophets. Love for God, love for neighbor. So God's jurisdiction, God's great commandments they tell us to love others for god's sake because everything's for the love of god and also to love others for others for the sake of others to love god is to love his glory we looked at this last week so we're not going to dwell here but you just think about this for a second those that are without christ the lost we would call them they they are not in a right relationship with god they're not glorifying god because they're not trusting in christ they're not loving christ they're not worshiping christ and so a true love for God would then compel us to, to by this great commandment, to the first commandment, to love God with all, all, all of our being. It should result in then in a passion and a zeal to see those that don't love God come to know and love and trust and worship Him. Because right now they're not. So if the Bible tells us that the angels in heaven rejoice over one sinner who repents then we ought to be laboring hard to preach Jesus Christ and to urge and call and plead with people to turn and believe in in Christ 
so that God can be praised now and forever. And so love for God is preeminent. Second commandment, he says, is to love your neighbor as yourself. That to love our neighbors as ourselves is to, is to want for them what we ourselves have come to know and love and, and appreciate for ourselves. Namely, a saving relationship with Jesus Christ. And so we found the thing that meets our greatest need. Really a person that meets our greatest need. But for some reason, I... We can keep our distance from those who need the very thing that we found. And, and this is where this, this great second commandment, it, it beckons us to love others as ourselves. To do unto others as we would have them do unto us. You just take that, the golden rule, and you put yourself in the, in the shoes of a, a person who's hopeless without Christ. Not having any hope of eternity with the Lord and 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 you know about you know Jesus Christ. What would they want you to do? Just tell me. I mean, they're not going to say that, but that's 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 the truth. So that's the second motivation: just the enormity of God's commandments, His jurisdiction. He's commanded us to love Himself supremely, love others as ourselves. Third motivation is the reality of hell. The reality of hell. Hell is real, and all who die without faith in Jesus Christ will experience its fury. We have one of the most descriptive passages of hell, and there are other places we could look, but in Second Thessalonians chapter 1, and um, just for time's sake, let's, I'm just going to start in verse 8. Um, he speaks of those who do not know God and on those who do not obey the gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ. It's those they will suffer the punishment of eternal destruction away from the presence of the Lord and from the glory of his might. Hell, hell is real. The Bible doesn't waffle on this. It's not iffy. It's clear. Hell is a place of eternal punishment for sinners who die Without trusting in Christ as their savior. And that's true for the person who's moral and grows up in the church. And has heard the gospel a thousand times. But not trusted in Christ. And it's true for the person in the remotest village in this planet. That's never heard the gospel. It's just a reality. To die without Christ is to face God's eternal wrath. And so our family members are co-workers or classmates or neighbors who die without Christ will be eternally sentenced to that fury of God's eternal judgment. That ought to compel us to love, to move out, to push past the awkwardness and the discomfort and the inconvenience, to walk across the street, to engage with, put the smartphone down and look a person in the eye, talk. What a novel idea. I'm talking to myself here, so it's not a scold. Um, and, and care about people. I was just, my brother Ed Sherwood, I don't know where you are, Ed. I mean, you saw the prayer request. We prayed for the salvation of his friend and business uh, uh, associate, Terry McCoy. And God was pleased to save him. And how many, how long ago was that? Six months, maybe? November, November okay, yeah. And he's been all kinds of physical issues, just died the other day. But, but, you know, we're just 
thank God for his grace that he died today. We were talking about this before service when we were praying. That he died now, not before. He's entering into, into the presence of Jesus Christ instead of into the fury of hell. Both are realities. And let that sober you up. Let that just prompt in your heart compassion for the lost. Let that, and that that would eclipse whatever other feelings you have racing through you. Fourth motivation is the desire of God. The desire of God. Now, many of us deeply believe and delight in God's sovereignty and salvation. Election, predestination, Calvinism, uh, at least parts. But something strange happens when we embrace that doctrine and then we come to passages like Second Peter 3.9 and Ezekiel 18.23 and even John 3.16. We have this little theological spasm in our brains and we just, oh, what do we do? And, and, and so we, our instinct, unfortunately, often is to try and fix those passages and to, 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 to correct them. To fit them into our system of belief that we've embraced. And that's, we know that's not right, but we do it anyway. So you get 2 Peter 3 9. The Lord is not slow to fulfill his promise, as some count slowness, but is patient towards you, not wishing that any should perish, but that all should reach repentance. And yet we can read that and we can see it somehow as a threat to our theology. And so we feel we have to do some kind of exegetical gymnastics to work around it and Smooth it out. And or we get to Ezekiel 18.23. God says, Have I any pleasure in the death of the wicked, declares the Lord God, and not rather that he should turn from his way and live. So we look at these passages that seem to be these genuine overtures and offers of grace and forgiveness and by God himself and of God's desire for all to be saved. And we get tied up in theological knots. We don't know how to work out of it. And we're tempted to do things, again, to the text that we know we shouldn't do. But listen, just let the text stand. God really does truly and genuinely love the lost. The unsaved, unredeemed sinners. We don't have to do anything to fix His Word. He's, he's, he's good without our help there. Um, and this is one of the realities. We're going to get deep for just a second here. But in systematic theology, this is a, as you study these things, God, can, God does actually desire things that he may not necessarily have decreed. His eternal decree does not change. And so don't let your heads just blow up here. For, but just bear with me for a second that God is, of, God is so much bigger than us and He's of such infinite proportions. It's hard for our little tiny pea brains to grasp. We're, we, we are creatures. He is Almighty God Creator. And so He's far more complex than we can possibly fathom. And so somehow in God there is, there can be this genuine desire for something that He has not eternally decreed. And, and, and we, we can be okay with that. And what has God done for us in his word? Has he told us everything about his eternal decree? No, he hasn't. There's mystery. There's things we just don't know. But he has revealed to us what he desires, his moral will. That's very clear. And so our responsibility as as Bible-believing Christians is not to try to figure out his eternal decree. I don't know. They look elect. They're definitely not. 
That's not our job. We, we don't know. We're not meant to know. Our responsibility is to look at what God desires as expressed in his word and to conform ourselves to that. And so God says that he is not wishing that any should perish, but that all should come to repentance. It doesn't mean that everybody's going to be saved, but that also doesn't erase God's authentic, genuine love for sinners and desire for their salvation. And so this desire of God, it should compel us to have the same like desire. God loves sinners. He loves the world. He so loved the world that he sent his son to die for sinners in the world. And he has genuine love for the, the soccer coaching family man dad who doesn't trust in Christ. And he has genuine love for the junkie with the needle in his arm. And for... For all, the invitation of the gospel is real because he desires all to be saved. Matthew eleven twenty eight. those are not empty words, just come to me though. All who labor and are heavy laden and I will give you rest. I just say to you, maybe you're weary. Maybe you're heavy laden. Are you, are you worn out from trying to earn God's favor by being a good person, by keeping up some kind of scale with God, do more good than bad, and think that God's going to kind of let you through in the end, that's exhausting. That's wearying. That's what Jesus was talking about. And Jesus says, come to me. Come. I'll give you rest. It's not what, it's not what you do. It's what I have done in your place. I've died for sin. Come, trust in me. And so if you haven't trusted in Christ, I urge you to do that this morning. Talk to somebody that you came with or me or somebody here and we'd love to share more. But God loves broken, lost, sinful sinners. We should love them too. Our job is not to harmonize God's eternal decree and his desire. Our job is to love as God loves. That's clear. Fifth motivation. And this is one of the greatest, I think, is the compassion of Jesus the compassion of Jesus, our Savior exemplified this genuine love for the broken, the unwelcome, the outcast, the lost. Turn to Mark 10 with me, or I think it's on the screen as well. Mark 10, this is that account of the rich young ruler, we call him. This is where D- Jesus is dealing with this young man in a way that just shatters the mold for most of us of how we think. Mark 10, verse 17, and as he was sit, setting out on his journey, a man ran up and knelt before him and asked, Good teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life? <coughs> and then Jesus said to him, Why do you call me good? No one is good except God alone. You know the commandments. Do not murder. Do not commit adultery. Do not steal. Do not bear false witness. Do not defraud. Honor your father and mother. And he said to him, Teacher, all these I have kept from my youth. And Jesus doesn't say there, hey, I beg to differ. Um, you've broken every single one of these from your youth up. Don't you know that by the works of the law, no flesh shall be justified and that through the law comes the knowledge of sin? I mean, those things are true, but that's not what he says. Jesus, verse 21, looking at him, loved him and said to him, you lack one thing, go Sell all that you have and give to the poor and you will have treasure in heaven and come follow me. Disheartened.
by the saying, you went away sorrowful for he had great possessions. Now, I can't walk through the whole passage. I just want to highlight that phrase. Looking at him, Jesus loved him. Most of us would have looked at him and felt disgust for him. We would have thought or maybe said, you self-righteous little jerk. But Jesus looks at this man who's lost and he loves him. There's nothing in scripture that indicates this man ever believes or turns and follows Jesus Christ. Maybe he did, maybe he didn't. We're not told. But but all we know is that Jesus genuinely loved this man in his unbelief. And, and we see it elsewhere in, in the life. Of, we see it all over the place in the life and ministry of Jesus Christ. Just another example. When Jesus looks over the city of Jerusalem, what does he do? He, he weeps. He weeps over this people, the lost people in the city. Why? Because he has genuine compassion for those that aren't saved. On another occasion, Matthew 22, verse 37, he says, Oh, Jerusalem, Jerusalem, how often when I've gathered your children together as a hen gathers a brood under her wings, and you would not. This is compassion of Christ. He, he looked at people through eyes of compassion because he loved out of a heart of compassion. That's the idea of compassion. It's bowels. It's deep-seated. It's, it's, I, I know love. Love is not just a feeling. It's not an emotion. And so love is, is, is a decision to seek the, the highest good of another person. But compassion that you see in Christ is is affects the emotions, the bowels. It's deep. He feels. He weeps. Do you do you look at people through tears, with a heavy, broken heart? You feel. Do you? Because we're called to be conformed to the image of Christ. We're called to walk in His steps. We're called to walk as He walks. So if if the eternal Son of God could look at this little self righteous rich young ruler, in his lostness, in his unbelief, and just love him. We, we, should, we should be able to look at those around us with love in our hearts for them and weep for them. Sixth motivation, two more, the pattern of Paul. The pattern of Paul. The, Paul manifested this genuine love for the lost and uh, we're going to have to move quickly here, but Romans 9, that's the text, the granddaddy text that we go to to support. Uh, we, we see the doctrine of election so clearly laid out. It's just an unanswerable passage for the honest Arminian. Um, but but what is Paul, how does Paul begin Romans 9? He says in verse 1, I am speaking the truth in Christ. I am not lying. My conscience bears witness in the Holy Spirit. You think he's serious about what he's going to say here? He says that I have... Great sorrow and unceasing anguish in my heart, for I could wish that I myself were accursed and cut off from Christ for the sake of my brothers, my kinsmen, according to the flesh. Do you get what he's saying there? For for the sake of his unbelieving Israelite kinsmen, he says, I have this unceasing grief, this enormous sorrow, this heavy, heavy burden, and it's so great that I would wish that I were accursed, cut off, that I wished I were damned if they could be saved. 
He says, not possible. I, I can't be cut off. I know it's not, but if it were possible, I would be. I would take their place. If they could be made right with God, I would willingly be separated from Christ. That is enormous statement. I don't think those are just empty words. I mean, this is great sorrow. And it's not just for the Jews. Second Corinthians 5, he talks about just... That, that we, we looked at this last week even, that we're ambassadors for Christ. God's making His appeal through us. We beg you, be reconciled to God. Begging people, constrained, compelled by the love of Christ, He says. He's just consumed with this desire to see others come to a saving relationship with Jesus Christ out of love for people. Final motivation is the nature of the gospel. It's the nature of the gospel. In a very familiar passage, Romans chapter 1, turn there with me. And, uh, the, the, but the very nature of the gospel of the free grace of God, it compels us to share with others what God has done for us out of love. And we find Romans 1, verse 14, I am under obligation both to Greeks and to barbarians, both to the wise and to the foolish. So I'm eager to preach the gospel to you also who are in Rome, for I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God to salvation for all who believe, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. And what Paul says is basically, I am a debtor. I'm under obligation I have a debt to pay both Greeks and non-Greeks, barbarians. The sophisticated, the unsophisticated, the the culture, the uncultured, the educated, the uneducated. I, I am under obligation to all of humanity, basically, is what he's saying. Why is he in debt? Because of his understanding of the gospel of the grace of God. The, the, the grace is the only thing that distinguishes you and me from anyone else is the sovereign grace of God. And, and that distinguishing grace puts a debt of obligation upon us to share the grace that we have received from God with others. It's not a place of, it's not where we stand over others in condescension and looking down our noses at them. It's, it's we, we who have been radically changed and transformed by God's grace. We, we have an obligation to share that grace with others. So Paul's saying, I'm a debtor now to those who are around me who've never heard. It's illustrated, if you remember in that uh, account, Second Kings chapter 7. Of course you remember Second Kings chapter 7. This is the Syrians, they come and they lay, say, lay, they lay siege to Israel, the whole, uh, to, to Judah. The whole city is uh, uh, being starved out. And, and there's this group of four lepers and they're outside of the city. They're starving to death just like everybody else. And they're even more cut off. And they start thinking, what are we going to do? How can we do it? So they, they said to one another, 2 Kings 7 verse 3. They said to one another, why are we sitting here until we die? If we say, let us enter the city, the famine in the, is in the city and we'll die there. And if we sit here, we'll die also. So now come, let us go over to the camp of the Syrians. And if they spare our lives, we shall live. And if they kill us, we shall but die. They said, what's the worst that can happen to us here? We're going to die either way. We might as well die on the battle line. And if they kill us, they'll put us out of our misery. If they don't, we'll starve to death. So what do we have to lose? Maybe, just maybe, they'll show mercy. And so, you remember it happens. They brave their way to the front lines of the battle. 
And what do they find? All the Assyrians are gone. Gone. And there's this camp and there's still fires burning and the tents are full of clothes and goods and hot food. And, and so they just storm into this camp, these four lepers, outcasts, and they start just gorging themselves on all of this meat and bread and potatoes and whatever else that I can think of and I'm making you hungry. And, and, and then they stop. What do they say? Verse 9, they said to one another, their food in their mouths, we're not, we're not doing right. This day is a day of good news. Come, let us go and tell the king's household. They think, we can't sit here gorging ourselves on all this food when everybody else is dying of starvation. So they go back, they share the good news of this battle provision of God with those who are starving. And, and, and this is, we find ourselves in the same place as those lepers. We, God, by his grace, has brought us into this bountiful tent of salvation in Jesus Christ. And we enjoy the riches and we're enjoying the feast. But we can't just sit here and glut ourselves. Sooner or later, we have to, we have to say, we have, we have to look around and think, you know what? As long as we have this good news, it's not morally right for us to sit on it. We have to share this with others. This is the day of good news. You can feast on Christ and have life in Him. And so this, the very nature of the gospel, of the good news, it compels us to go and tell others. This is, we're, we're beggars telling other beggars where to find bread. It's been said. That's what, that's what, we're, that's what our task is. Alright, quickly. Where do we go from here? I said each week we're going to end with kind of some specific action. And last week I asked you to find a, find a buddy, a buddy system here through this series. And so find someone to meet with, to talk with on the phone, to correspond with, to pray together for accountability through the series and working through the application of this. I hope you did that. So this morning, uh, well, I'll, I'll, I, what I want you to do is I want you to think through these questions now with that person. I'll explain more. First, two, two simple applications this morning. One, just fall in love with people again. Um, it's, it's three, three action words here. Look, ask, listen. Just look. Take, look at people. Look, as you're standing in the line to get the deli meat. I, I was doing this yesterday. Just observe people. Look at eyes. Again, it means putting the phone in the pocket. You can do it. Um, and, and just observe people. Look at your kids. Look at your neighbors. Look at people around you, coworkers, your teammates. So look, there are there is brokenness. There's hurt all around you, and you you can't see it though if you're not looking. That's kind of generic. Second, ask, engage. Don't just look, but talk and take time to show genuine interest in people. Ask about hurts. Ask about struggles, ask about joys, ask about sorrows, regrets, hopes, fears. Those, those deeper matters of, I don't mean you just meet somebody in general. So tell me your deepest struggle in life. You know, that's not what I'm talking about. But as you engage with people and get to know people, take the conversation past weather and sports and, and, uh, Pinterest or whatever else is you're talking about and, and get to those deeper heart issues. Just ask questions. And you'll be amazed at what comes out. I mean, most people don't even get asked. How can I pray for you? I mean, you can ask that pretty early on and as you meet somebody. And things will come out. And then listen. Ask and then listen. I don't mean listen for a break in the conversation. 
so you can get your word in and, and correct everything they said. I mean, listen for their heart to talk. Listen for those deeper issues and struggles and give them an opportunity to speak. And, and, and when you, when there will be an opportunity for you to say things and to bring the gospel to bear and to light. But you gotta, you've gotta be listening. Don't pe- don't treat people like projects that you've gotta get to completion real quickly. They're not tasks to get accomplished for the day. No. It's relationships and it's, it's messier and it's longer and slower. So, so look, ask, listen. So, love people. Second, take these seven motive, seven truths and personalize them. And this is what I mean. We, we talk about loving people, humanity, the lost, this abstract, nameless, faceless, group but 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 take this and personalize it no it's not just the it's not just humanity it's it's john he lives across the street from me and and um it's sarah she walks at the park when i walk it's farouk who who works at the dry cleaners that i go to every couple weeks and so it's that it's it's john lives across the street from me he's made in the image of god and he has a soul that will last forever and 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 it seems like he cares more about fixing up old cars than he does about Christ. That's his apparent God, but he's still an image bearer. He's still, he's gonna, he's gonna live for eternity. And, and in fact, and second, if, if I should have a zeal to see John come to know and, and believe in Jesus Christ and be a worshiper of God instead of worshiping his hobby. He's robbing God of glory by this idolatry of card. I'm not saying that's where you jump into the conversation, but I'm saying this is this is what's motivating you. If I love God, I want John to worship God. And and the second commandment, I, if I if if John if John knew Jesus Christ and I didn't, and this guy was across the street, I'd want him to come over and talk to me. I want him to invite me into his home. I want him to engage me in conversation. I'd want him to look, ask, and listen. I may, I'd want him to hand put literature in my hands that I could read that could point me to Jesus Christ. So I'm gonna I'm gonna love him as I would want him to love me. And if John, it's John. It's not just some nameless, faceless people. But it's John who's gonna spend eternity in hell if he doesn't believe in Jesus Christ. And God has genuine love for John and a desire to see him saved. And I need to exemplify the compassion that was modeled by Jesus Christ and we saw in the, we see in Paul even. And I have a debt to pay John. I'm enjoying this gourmet feast like the, like the leper right across the street while he's starving to death. I have this moral obligation to, to go to him. And, and, and so, that's the assignment. That your partner that you got paired up with last week. If you haven't done that, if you weren't here, I would encourage you. If you, I know it's summer, people are coming and going. You may not have been here last week. Sermons are online. They're all together. And so please go back and listen to last week's message and try to keep up if, you know, if you're coming and going. But the, but if, you, if the person that you're kind of paired up with, I had a young person come up and tell me and who they were paired up with, and they were all excited and asking again what kind of the assignment was, and so I was fired up. Um, but this week, I want you to personalize these truths, and I just want you to begin to pray together for maybe two or three people that that God has put in your life, in the sphere of your life. If you can't think of two or three people, you can all. 
but so find two or three people and begin to personalize these truths and pray together. That's the goal this week. All right, let's pray. Lord, help us. We uh, we we have so many obstacles to to really loving people as you love people. Um, fear of man, uh, just love of comfort. Love of reputation, just a desire to for peace and all cost, and we have all kinds of things that warn us. Pride, we don't want to lay down our our rights. We want to be able to say what we want to say when we want to say it, and we forget God that the tongue is not mine; it's yours, and and it's to be controlled by you. And so we have all kinds of things that keep us from loving well. And I pray, Father, that you would, by your Spirit, just help us, God, give us a. May just one or two of these motivations even sink deeply into our soul this morning that we would be more aware of people around us and and move towards people in love. Uh, We ask in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen.